خوش اومدین هموطنان گرامی من شهریار افشار هستم میزبان شما در پالیتیکس 365 امروز یک پروفسور خیلی برجسته و فعال به برنامه دعوت کردیم خانم سهر عزیز ایشون یه پروفسور و نویسنده و محقق در راتکرز لا سکول در نیوجرسی و خیلی مقاله و کتاب نوشتن در مورد موضوع اسرائیل و فلسطین و مخصوصا نقش قانون در و حقوق بشر در حوادثی که الان در گازا داره اتفاق میفته و چند تا مقاله و کتاب در این مورد نوشتن ما شاید این بحث رو در دو بخش پخش کنیم بخش امروز تمرکز میکنه روی واقعا حوادثی که در گازا داره اتفاق میفته و چجوری دنیا و کشور بنومللی مسئولن که اسرائیل رو بهش توجه کنن و تا اونجایی که میتونن این موضوع حقوق بشر رو به جلسه ها و دوره های قانونی سراسر دنیا برسونن Sahar Aziz, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I've, I've looked at what you've done. Uh, you know, some of the work that you've done is really, I think it's inspirational and it's so timely and important. Uh, as I've said many times, you know, what happened October 7th is deplorable. I've never found any human being that justifies that kind of barbarity. However, as the Secretary General of the United Nations said, that didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, you know, it happened after 86 years of suffocating occupation, his words. Of course, the Israeli uh, Prime Minister, uh, the Israeli ambassador quickly objected to that. And since then, we've been witnessing uh, a terrible loss of life in Gaza that is just very difficult to comprehend as justified. Uh, not to mention how the questions that people are asking is how do you uh, hold a country as close as Israel as to, is to the United Nations, to the United States, accountable for what's happening? So tell us a little bit about your background, and then let's get into really the legal issues unfolding in Gaza right now. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's truly a pleasure. My name is Sahar Aziz. I'm a law professor at Rutgers Law School. I'm also the founding director of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights, which is the first and only civil rights center at a U.S. law school that focuses primarily on the civil and Muslim, excuse me, the civil and human rights of Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians of various faiths. And we also look at how the international events that happen in their countries of origin affect their rights, both abroad and uh, in the United States. And I am uh, proudly an Egyptian American and Cairo is my uh, city of birth, which uh, is always a a pleasure to, to go back and see. Uh, so what I, you know, what I focus most of my research on is trying to understand how the developments in the Middle East, whether they're in a peaceful or in a, in a war context or peacetime or wartime context, impact the way in which uh, Americans and the U.S. government treat and perceive and act on uh, towards Muslim Arabs and South Asians. And so what we're seeing, the tragedy that we're seeing right now in Gaza and the multiple war crimes that Israel is committing on a daily basis that is resulting, I mean, thus, thus far as 2023, the numbers are as high as 20,000 Palestinians that have been killed. That includes more than 8,000 children 
Palestinian children that have been killed. And also you have 40,000 injured and an estimated 5,000 that are missing under the rubble of residential buildings that have been indiscriminately bombed by, by Israel. And so these types of uh, tragedies and humanitarian crises have prompted many of the challenges that Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims deal with when they're trying to discuss them in the media, when they're trying to have conversations in their workplaces or in neighborhoods or in, in the, in the uh, Congress or their state legislatures, which is that they're often presumed to be anti-Semitic, that they're often presumed not to um, want peace in, in the Middle East or peace in Israel or in Palestine. Uh, and that is a form of censorship. It's a form of silencing. And the reason why it works is because at least since 9-11, arguably before, and I'm sure Iranian Americans appreciate this because of the anti-Iranian racism that was unleashed after the 1979 uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran, but what you have is an entire population that's been primed, right? This is socialized to view and believe that people from the Middle East are hateful, they're violent, they're dangerous, and that they hate Jews, which is false. It, of course, anti-Semitism exists in any community, and so does Islamophobia, and so does uh, sexism and all forms of bias. But this presumption that, that we and our communities are subhuman, right? That we don't deserve to be, to have our, our lives valued. And, and by extension, we don't deserve to have our voices heard and our experiences recognized. Uh, and so there is this privileging and this elevation of Jewish experiences and Israeli experiences uh, at, at the expense of, in today's time, the, literally the expense of Palestinian lives. It, that's really an, an amazing assessment um, and unfortunate reality that we live in. Um, how did we get here? Uh, how uh, did you know one life matter more than another? Of course, humanity tells us our human history tells us that's happened, you know, various instances. It seems like sometimes if one country or one uh, nation has a better PR mechanism, they get to elevate their value and then dehumanize the other nation's worth. Uh, and I've seen this play out in the Israeli parliament. I saw, I think, one Palestinian uh, uh, rep say, hey, uh, every life matters. And a Jewish, uh, you know, member shot back saying, no, 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 Jewish lives matter more. I mean, pretty shocking uh, of the division within Israel that, that was apparent before October 7 and since. And then there, I've seen many Israeli people uh, protesting, I mean, I'm sorry, in Israel and also uh, around the world, protesting the right-wing actions of their own government uh, in, a, in concert with all the other people on the planet that are opposed to what's happening and they're demanding accountability in the Capitol Hills and the city halls all around our country. Uh, but here we are. Uh, somehow, as you said, 15, 20,000 children, men, women, men killed. Uh, maybe they've, they're getting some Hamas. I'm sure they're getting some Hamas terrorists killed in, in the mix of that rubble. But every time they push a button, they're killing women and children. They know that. Even all the reporters are saying there's just no way to justify what's happening as targeted smart you know, warfare. And, and what this has created, it seems like to me, and I would love your observation, 
it's created some daylight between the U.S. and Israel. Now you have the American policymakers saying, let's slow down. How do you see accountability unfolding for Israel over the coming months, years, if at all? Well, first, we need to name what is happening. And on October 7th, uh, Hamas, which governs Gaza, but also has a militant arm, and its militant arm violated international law and committed war crimes when it killed civilians right, in an armed conflict. And in response, the uh, state of Israel then committed additional war crimes and much worse war crimes because they did not follow the laws of war that require that you don't target civilians intentionally, that you do not indiscriminately bomb areas where there's high density and population of civilians, that you do not collectively punish civilians, and that you only use military force when it is necessary and, and proportionate to meet the military objective. And so what we've seen over the last two months, so not one day, which was October 7th, when Hamas committed its war crimes, but over two months, eight straight weeks, we've seen Israel violate these multiple laws of war to the extent that increasing numbers of genocide scholars are coming to the conclusion that the intent behind Israel's war crimes may not be what it claims, which is to eliminate Hamas, but rather to intentionally eliminate part of the Palestinian people and ethnically cleanse the remainder. So the definition of genocide under the Genocide Convention, which was passed in 1951, uh, is defined as any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group or causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group or deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part or imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group or finally to forcibly transfer children of the group to another group. And so what we have is three out of those five means through which uh, a state or an organization can attempt to commit genocide, Israel is doing. And specifically, they have attempted to starve 2.3 million Palestinian civilians by denying them food, water, and fuel for six weeks and then there was a small little break during the truce, and now they've gone back to trying to prevent any food or water or fuel. So the only, there is no military objective to doing that, other than a, a non-military objective, a genocidal, I believe a genocidal objective, which is to cause maximum death. Because either, if, if you're Palestinian in Gaza, you're either gonna die from being bombed, or you're gonna die from starvation, or you're going to die from dehydration because you don't have access to any clean water. You need electricity in or, or fuel in order to desalinate the water or to clean the water that's underground and pump it because that's the only you know, drinkable water there is. Or you're going to die from disease and sickness because the lack of food and water is spreading 
all sorts of diseases and the destruction systematically of the hospitals and the medical uh, care system by the Israelis is also causing people to die that otherwise would not have died if they'd had medical care. So put together over a period of eight weeks, and as of December 4th, 2023, Israel is continued and actually has expanded its bombing. Originally, they said, we're only going to focus on North Gaza. They pushed 1.1 million Palestinians, they ethnically displaced them, ethnically cleansed and displaced them to the south. Now they're moving to the central Gaza, and now they're bombing south Gaza. So what's the end game? I believe the end game is to maximize the number of deaths, again, through bombing, disease, uh, and starvation. And whatever Palestinians miraculously can survive, they want to push them into Egypt. And they want to ethnically cleanse them. And I think that's the final solution for uh, the current Israeli government. And they've never lied about the fact, of, they've never hid the fact that they wanted to, the, the Palestinians to all move to either Egypt or Syria or Jordan because they don't recognize them as a people to begin with. So, so that's the state, the, the horrific state of affairs. And the question now becomes, why isn't uh, the Western countries, why aren't the Western countries doing anything about it? And even worse, why are they supporting it? And why are the Middle East countries not doing anything about it and arguably even supporting it behind the scenes? Uh, and I think what we're seeing is uh, a, a disproportionate um, bias and uh, favoritism, right, and towards Israel that is rooted in or originates in multiple factors, one of which is is raw racism, because again, you cannot underestimate the way in which Palestinians have been dehumanized as part of a broader anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, anti-Middle Eastern racial system, right? Racist system that as I talk about in detail in my book, the racial Muslim when racism crushes religious freedom has become normalized. So Palestinians are seen as inferior brown, right? They are, whereas Israelis are perceived as superior white Europeanized people. So there is this clash of civilizations. There is this uh, so-called conflict between the civilized and the barbaric which Netanyahu was very clear about when he started citing Old Testament uh, verses saying, you know, these are like the Amalekites, we, need, you, we should destroy them and not leave one child or, or, or mother or, or parent alive or man alive. So the Israeli right-wing government is not hiding their intent. Meanwhile, our U.S. taxpayer dollars is funding the, this genocide, or at the very least these war crimes, $3.8 billion has been going to Israel for the last 40 years to fund its military. And now Biden wants another $14 billion to be approved by Congress. Uh, so the other reason that that is happening is because the U.S. political system is corrupt. It has become dominated by special interest groups and rich individuals and corporate lobbies. This affects multiple issues, including the foreign policy in the Middle East and specifically in Israel and Palestine. And so you have special interest groups who have an enormous treasure trove that they effectively use to buy politicians. And when the politicians don't uh, vote as they want, they go and 
fund the opposition candidates to, to beat them. And we see this with the guns rights. We see this with abortion rights. We see this with uh, you know, all other high, highly controversial issues. But we're all seeing it on full display right now. And again, the cost is, the price is tens of Palestinian lives. Thank you so much for bringing it home so wonderfully, uh, Sahara. One of those special interest groups, uh, which we'll get to in uh, a few minutes, uh, is APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, just a juggernaut of uh, of American uh, interest groups. And uh, they have a very clear mission of you know cultivating a closer relation between Israel and the U.S. And uh, if you're a politician running for Congress, uh, Senate, House of Representatives, if you um, run afoul of APAC, uh, then, as you said, they fund the opposition uh, and you lose your, your place. So uh, we'll get to that uh, in a minute. Uh, but I did want to just make a plug to your, about your website and your book. Uh, and we will have another uh, segment, uh, separate independent segment to talk more uh, about your book. But uh, it is The Racial Muslim on, uh, on Amazon. You can buy it. It's also referred to on your website. SaharAzizLaw.com. Uh, so please uh, take a look. You know, we want to be fair to everyone, but I've, you know, I, the rebuttal I've heard from the Israelis on public, you know, conversations is that they're targeting Hamas. That's not to say they're not hitting civilians. Lots of things could be targeted, and you know, there's incredible collateral damage. But they're very unapologetic about it, and as you say. The, the U.S. Uh, House just passed a $14 billion bill, uh, I, I assume is going to the Senate and then eventually the president. But if I understood that bill correctly, it has no humanitarian aid for Palestinians. It is 100 percent for uh, the, the Israeli military complex to fight Hamas, the military arm of Hamas. So that's another troubling aspect of the American political system, which is I mean, we'll never get to the bottom of it. But uh, Sahara Aziz, thank you so much for joining us. We will talk more. We want to learn from you. Thank you so much for educating us on what's going on in Gaza. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you. Let's talk about APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. It was incorporated in 1963. For 10 years prior to that, it was known as the American Zionist Committee for Public Affairs. APAC calls itself America's pro-Israel lobby, and according to its website, it has over 3 million members across the country in regional chapters working to, quote, expand and strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship, end quote. You may know APEC as being one of the biggest and most recognizable donors to many of the members of Congress in your state. But contributing to campaigns is a relatively new function of the organization. Before 2021, APEC did not endorse candidates nor give political contributions. Its focus was on lobbying elected officials, not actually electing officials. But in a dramatic shift in policy, APAC began directly funding candidates and spending big on races in 2021. APAC Political Action Committee, APAC-PAC, filed something called a Statement of Organization with the FEC just in time for the 2022 election cycle, where it spent $50 million, including both direct contributions to candidates and outside spending, like TV advertisements. According to APEC, it donated money to 365 candidates from both parties, including 
every single member of both Democratic and Republican leadership in Congress. 109 Republicans who voted against the certification of the 2020 presidential election in America received campaign contributions from AIPAC. All in all, AIPAC gave money to 342 members of the 118th Congress. The 2022 elections were the most expensive midterms in American history, with a total cost of $8.9 billion spent. Now, last year, AIPAC ranked 15th in total expenditure by a political action committee, according to data collected by Open Secrets. But take a look at the other funders that APAC is competing against for that title. Act Blue and Win Red. They are Democratic and Republican Party machines. Save America is Donald Trump's uh, money-raising operation. The Conservative Club for Growth, Emily's List, focuses on electing Democratic women to office. All of the PACs on this list are massively domestic-focused ideological machines. APAC is the only organization in the top 20 whose interests are focused entirely on America's relationship to a foreign government. Now, let's take a look at who benefits from APAC's largesse. Here are the top 20 recipients in Congress, the House and the Senate, of APEC money in the 2022 midterm cycle, according to Open Secrets. They're members of both parties. They come from every corner of the country with varying levels of experience in Congress. The Democrat Glenn Ivey of Maryland tops the list. He beat out fellow Democrat Donna Edwards in Maryland's House primary after APEC poured millions into pro-Ivey advertisements and mailers. Edwards was running for a second stint in Congress after serving during the Obama administration, where she voted present, not even a no, on a number of pro-Israel resolutions. So the money poured in against her. Not even an endorsement from Nancy Pelosi could save her. Michigan Democrat Haley Stevens unseated Democratic Representative Andy Levin. Here's what Levin had to say about that. I'm really Jewish, <laughs> but uh, APAC uh, can't stand the idea that I am the clearest, strongest Jewish voice in Congress standing for a simple proposition that there's no way to have a secure democratic homeland for the Jewish people unless we achieve the political and human rights of the Palestinian people. APAC spent $4 million against Levin. He lost by 20 points. When Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American in Congress, was censured by the House in early November over what some lawmakers called her rhetoric around the Israeli-Hamas war, 22 Democrats joined Republicans in that censure vote. 18 of those Democrats received campaign funds from APAC in 2022, totaling more than $1.1 million. By the way, for these six of them, APAC was their top contributor. A growing list of progressive lawmakers who are vocal in their criticism of the government of Israel and its policies and their support for Palestinian self-determination have inspired APAC to spend even more. As progressive lawmakers began calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, Slate reported that insiders expect APAC's 2024 spending to hit $100 million. In fact, United Democracy Project, which is a pro-Israel super PAC affiliated with APAC, is already spending money on attack ads against Democratic representatives Jamal Bowman of New York and Summer Lee of Pennsylvania. Lee has already got a primary challenger, as do Cori Bush and Ilhan Omar. Pro-Israel donors have already signaled that they are eager to primary Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
Congresswoman Lee already overcame APAC's financial influence against her once. She tweeted criticisms of Israel's treatment of Palestinians in 2021, but as a candidate, she affirmed Israel's right to exist. But that's not good enough. APEC spent nearly $3 million in the primary alone to defeat Lee, and they almost did. She beat Stephen 